tell you what, I am, I am grateful uh, for a church that is alive. And that is not something we can conjure. True life in a church is only brought about by the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit at work in us and through us. And I'm just so grateful for that. I'm grateful when I see it in, in the, the worship and the singing. I'm grateful when I see it in the encouragement and the prayers that are being prayed for one another. I see it in so many different aspects as gifts are being used. And so uh, thank you. Thank you for that. One of the signs of life as well is just uh, people uh, that, that Christ is bringing into the church and families uh, that are wanting to, to connect and become a part of this family. And so I just want to mention to you a couple of those families that we're going to be voting on in the coming weeks. And uh, one of them is the Brandsma family, Justin and Casey. They're in the back, and if you want to turn around, and they can wave a little bit just so you can make uh, put a face, a face with them. Uh, we're going to be voting on the Brandsmas in a couple of weeks. They've been coming uh, for a few months now and uh, have just found, found a home here and uh, found that life and connection here as well. And so we'll be voting on them in the next couple of weeks. And the others are the Subcheck uh, family, Travis and Jessica. Travis, if you want to wave, and Jessica's in front. They're not fighting. There's just too many to be on one pew. Uh, but they've been coming for quite some time. Jessica's actually John Van Gordon's sister. And uh, we're going to be voting on them on May 8th. Travis has to work most Sundays. And if he wants to be here on a Sunday, he has to take a vacation day. And so he's going to be taking a day that day uh, so we can vote on them for Mother's Day. And uh, so I'm just grateful for those two families. It's been a joy to get to know them. And uh, I'm, I'm excited uh, to confirm them into the membership of Meadowview Baptist Church in those coming weeks. And so... Uh, there's a lot of other things going on, and I just encourage you to check your, check your bulletin and uh, see what's going on, see where you can plug in. If you have any questions, please just let me or one of the other leaders know. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 uh, today. Surprise, surprise. Uh, verse 15 is where we're going to start in just a moment. That's on 906 if you want to use a pew Bible. 906 in a pew Bible. Um, a couple of years ago, my family, that was Faith and the kids, were going to be traveling uh, north uh, to Lincoln, Nebraska to have Thanksgiving with my in-laws who live here now. And uh, I, I wasn't going with them. Uh, I think I was uninvited or something. I'd probably done something offensive. Uh, no, nothing, nothing along those lines. I was always welcome. Uh, I was working UPS at the time, and so it just made sense for me to stick around. I had to work the day before and after Thanksgiving. And so they were going to head out. But just like the day before they were going to leave, Faith started feeling a little sick. And uh, so it got worse and worse, and finally she had to call it. And so me and Alethea had about one day uh, to put together a full Thanksgiving meal. I was probably just going to get a pizza or something exciting that day. And so we did a pretty good job. Uh, we had that change of plans, and we put it together. Faith got a little better. But uh, <clears throat> Mom and Dad were very bitter over that. Uh, the change plans, that they couldn't stand that, that everything changed at the last minute. They were left all alone. Uh, in Nebraska, all because of faith, and I'll blame her. It was her fault. Now, now, parts of that story are fictitious. I'll let you figure out the fictitious parts, maybe the bitterness, maybe what I'm saying is the fictitious part. Uh, but I use the story to illustrate this. Travel plans change all the time. I think if we were just to take a consensus, every one of us could think of an instance in our life, our family's life, where we had plans to do something, and at the last minute, those things changed. So many variables. There's sickness, as was mentioned. Uh, there are uh, uh, car problems that happen, airline strikes, natural disasters, 
Uh, sometimes it's other better options uh, that present themselves, and so we, we change plans at the last minute. Maybe today for you it's high gas prices, and you're not going to make that trip because you don't want to pay extra at the pump. But over the past couple weeks, we have mentioned that Paul's relationship with the Corinthian church is not doing so well. Uh, there was mistrust, and today we're going to begin to kind of hone in a little bit on, on why the mistrust was there, addressing some of the source of that mistrust, and Paul's expectations and his hopes uh, that he will be able to explain to the Corinthians uh, what happened and what changed. And when you know the mistrust, part of that kernel lies with some changed travel plans that happened in Paul's life and ministry. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 15. Paul writes this, Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first, so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia, and to come back to you from Macedonia, and have you send me on my way to Judea or to Israel. Was I vacillating? When I wanted to do this, do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no, at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Sylvanius and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. This is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. And who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, as we consider your word today, would you bless? Would you help us to see the beautiful truths about our Savior Jesus, about your faithfulness? Would you help us today, Spirit, to respond with a resounding amen along with the Apostle Paul? We pray for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as we just read, Paul opens by sharing his heart, uh, his desire to visit the Corinthians. When Paul writes about his confidence and his surety in this first verse that we look at, he's alluding back to what we talked about last week, his integrity. Last week he made a solid case for his integrity. It was under question. And so he now writes, I wanted to come to you. Based on my integrity, as surely as I can say it, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. Now, to understand exactly what Paul's getting at here when he says, I wanted to come to you first, and then he throws in that, that second experience of grace, we have to get a broader picture of Paul's relationship, Paul's timeline with the Corinthian church. And so we're going to nerd out for a little bit here. Those of you who know me, you know I, love the, I like the history, I like the geography edge. And so you're going to have to follow along with me to kind of follow their storyline. We're going to even throw a map up here uh, so that you can follow along on the map. But Paul's history with 
with the Corinthians starts for us in Acts chapter 18. Here's what it reads. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and he came to Corinth. So I have the map up here. I know you can't read uh, these uh, names. Here's Athens. Here's Corinth. Uh, Somebody else is helping me back there. Uh, Athens and Corinth. Uh, And this is Paul's second missionary journey. And so he was in Athens. He goes to Corinth. Acts goes on to explain that Paul spent 18 months in the city of Corinth. And so he's there. Uh, He's establishing the church. Aquila, Priscilla, Silas, Timothy show up. There's others that are eventually named uh, converts that were there. Sosthenes, Crispus. And after 18 months, Paul leaves Corinth and he travels to Ephesus uh, where he will spend. Here's Corinth. Here's Ephesus where he spends about two years establishing and working there in the church at Ephesus. And while he's there, he gets word that the Corinthians are struggling. They have some questions about things, and so he gets word about this, and so Paul writes a letter to them. Now, in 1 Corinthians, that's the book prior to the one we're looking at here, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul mentions this letter that he wrote to them. So think about this, 1 Corinthians isn't actually 1 Corinthians. It's not the first letter that he wrote to them. It's the first letter we have in the canon of Scripture, but there was another letter that he previously wrote, and he addressed some of those questions to him. But in time, Paul would come to learn from a woman named Chloe that they had basically ignored his first letter. And so what does he do? He writes another letter to him. And that's the letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that we have in our scriptures that we know as 1 Corinthians. And he writes to deal with the divisions. They were divided over leadership. They were fighting over uh, what marriage was, what constituted sexual immorality. They were fighting over all of these issues. The church was unhealthy. And so he writes the letter of 1 Corinthians where he addresses all of those issues and many more with them. Here at Meadowview in 2017 and 2018 took us nearly two years, we worked our way through that letter to the first Corinthians. We called it our healthy church series. And I look back on that and think by God's grace, we became more healthy as we considered those truths making our way through that. And at the end of 1 Corinthians, in chapter 16, you could actually flip back there if you're in 2 Corinthians, in chapter 16, verses 5 through 9, Paul shares his intentions to come and personally visit the Corinthians again. So at the end of the letter, he says, I want to come to you again. And he gives them his travel plans. He says, I'm going to leave Ephesus. I'm going to head north. I'm going to come around Macedonia. There's Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. And then I'll make my way down to Corinth. And I'll probably spend the winter with you. So these are Paul's plans at the end of this letter. So if we say Paul wrote the letter of 1 Corinthians in the summer fall of 53 AD, which most believe it was that time frame, It was just a few months later in the spring of 54 AD that he sends Timothy to go check out Corinth from Ephesus, and Timothy makes his way back and says, things are not good. The church hasn't listened to any of your letters. The previous two, things continue to crumble, things continue to get worse, and so what Paul does is he immediately hops a boat from Ephesus and makes his way to Corinth, and he says, in, in 2 Corinthians here, chapter 2, verse 1, he says, this emergency trip that I made was a sorrowful visit. <laughs> it's like when your dad said, you don't want me to come in there. They didn't want Paul to come in there, and Paul came in there. Paul showed up, and he brought some correction to them. After that sorrowful visit, Paul made his way back to Ephesus across the ocean, and things in Corinth, as you can imagine, still got worse. <laughs> Some in the church, one particular leader was railing on Paul. 
And it seems no one was standing up to defend Paul. And so after another negative report, Paul still in Ephesus, he sends another letter. He says it's a, it's a painful letter that he sends. He refers to it in chapter 2, verse 4 here in 2 Corinthians, what we'll talk about next week. So if you're keeping track, this is Paul's third letter, right? He, he wrote the initial letter, and they didn't really respond to that well, so he wrote the next letter, which we know is 1 Corinthians, and now he's written another letter that he calls the sorrowful letter that followed his painful visit. And so things are not well in their relationship. Well, at some point, Paul had conveyed to the Corinthians, probably in the painful letter or painful visit, that he was going to change his initial plans. Remember, he was going to leave Ephesus and go north and go through, go through Philippi, Thessalonica, come down to Corinth. But, but he's, he's, he's conjured a new plan and he's communicated it to him that, no, I'm going to come right back from Ephesus and I'm going to come to you, Corinth. And then I'm going to head north and then I'm going to come back south and I'm going to see you again before I make my way all the way down here to Judea. This is the new plan that Paul has. And so the severe, painful letter that he wrote took the place of the promised visit to see them again. And, and Paul had changed his plans and it disappointed him. Instead of going straight to them, he decided, I'm going to go back to my initial plan. I'm going to change. I'm going to go north. I'm going to come back down and then I will come to see you. And as you can imagine, that upset some of them in Corinth. You said you were coming right back. You said that you were going to uh, come back and be with us. And uh, the false teachers then began to make accusations against Paul to say, Paul, Paul is fickle. Paul is, is wishy-washy. You can't trust him. You can't trust his word. He said he was coming back, but now he's changed his plans. He's not coming back. And so in the fall of 55 AD, Paul had sent Titus to check on the church at Corinth. Titus met Paul in Macedonia, as Paul is up here now, and told him that that, that letter had worked some good and there's still, there's still some bad. And so that report of good and bad, Paul writes another letter to them, the letter that we're studying now, 2 Corinthians. And so all that history <laughs> brings us to today. This study, why Paul's writing, why he's defending his integrity, why he's offering explanation to the Corinthians. After leaving that sorrowful visit and returning to Ephesus, Paul did intend to go straight back to Corinth, but, but he didn't want to do that to them, and he didn't want to do that to him. The wounds were still raw. And it seems he may have wanted some time for, for healing to happen before he showed back up again or before he addressed them again. And so he thought it the wisest course of action to go back to his original plan and go north and then come south. And we can see in that change of plan some of the things that are going on. So he says, I wanted to come to you first. I didn't end up doing that. But then in verse 15, he also talks about the second benefit, the second experience of grace. Uh, what, what, is he, what is he talking about there? Well, he's talking about in his initial plan, he was going to come to Corinth, and then they were going to financially help him head north. They were going to fund his trip into Macedonia, and then he was going to come back south and they were going to financially help him again, a second experience of grace, a second opportunity for them to give so that he can make the trip all the way across back to Israel. And so that's what he's talking about when he says this second experience of grace that I would like for you. And you may think, man, Paul, you're asking for money from these people? Your relationship's not great and you're asking for money? Well, these people were well-to-do. And Paul understood that it would be a blessing to them to be able to show generosity. We'll deal with that as we work through 2 Corinthians because he brings it up later. 
So now that we know the history, more than you probably want to know, uh, the accusation being made towards Paul makes more sense. And what he does in verse 17 is he rewords those accusations in the form of, of two questions that he offers them, two rhetorical questions. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and then no, no at the same time? Paul's change of plans was chum in the water for the sharks at Corinth who were trying to take him down. They were saying, Paul cannot be trusted. Here's the proof. We've been telling you guys this for years. Here's the proof. He keeps changing his mind. He's vacillating. And so here, Paul addresses their accusations head on with these, these two rhetorical questions that are meant to defend his integrity. He claims he was not vacillating when he changed his plan. He doesn't make plans based upon the flesh. Not according to his feelings and his purposes. Paul says, my yes means yes and my no means no. Paul's point in these verses and last week's verses are the integrity that he has. They're meant to remind the Corinthians, hey, you can trust me. Paul's trying to remind them, you, you can trust me. My intentions for you are, are always born out of love. They're not selfish. What I do, I do for you, not for my own benefit. And that's the argument that he's making. But the roots, the roots of his integrity go deeper. Last week we made this point that Paul viewed his integrity as an extension of the integrity of the gospel message. And so, so if Paul lacks integrity, the message of Jesus that he preaches will lack integrity. This is why it's, it's vitally important that those who are ministers of the gospel have integrity because so goes their character, so goes the character of the message that they're sharing with others. Paul takes this very seriously. Paul's life is handcuffed to the good news of Christ. And so it's no surprise that Paul's deepest appeal is related to the character and the work of God in his life, in the life of the Corinthians, and by extension in time, our lives here today. And so Paul's gospel appeal begins in verse 18 where he appeals to the faithfulness of God first. Because the stability of his ministry... The substance of Paul's ministry is based upon the faithfulness of God, God's character. Notice, notice what he writes there in those verses. He says, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. And so as God is faithful, so is our word to you, Paul claims. This leaves the Corinthians with a question, leaves us with the question, is God faithful? Paul's using this as his support, as his argument. Is God faithful? And the answers are resounding and unappealable. Yes, absolutely he is faithful. God is the definition of faithfulness. God is the revealer of what it is to be faithful, to be trustworthy, to be someone who is full of truth. It says this in Numbers, one of my favorite verses. God is not a man that he should lie. <laughs> He's different than us. He's faithful and trustworthy. Worthy, He keeps the promises that he makes to his people. And so Paul's claim here is this. My ministry to you, Corinthians, is built on the foundation of the faithfulness of God. And so for you, Corinthians, to accuse me of being fickle is to call God's faithfulness into question. And I think he's saying in the undertone, I don't think you want to do that. 
I don't think that's the direction you want to take this. And so he goes on. And just in case you do want to question the faithfulness of God, then let me remind you of the supreme example of God's faithfulness towards you and towards all of humanity. And notice the example that he gives in verse 19. He appeals to the gospel. He appeals to the person of Jesus Christ. And he writes this, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Sylvanius, Silas, and Timothy, and I, it was not yes and no, but in him, it is always a yes. In Jesus, it's always a yes for the promises. All the promises of God find their yes in him. And that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Here's the thing. Paul appeals to the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. The good news that Paul and company had preached to the Corinthians for 18 months in the initial and continued to preach to them through letters and visits and time. The good news that the Corinthians believed is the proof of the faithfulness of God because the message of Jesus is not fickle. It is firm. It, is, it isn't a yes and no. It's a yes always as we consider the good news and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what does that mean? It's always a yes. What does it mean to say that Jesus is the yes? We just sang that song, a thousand names. And I love the bridge where we work through the different names that we have for God. He's, he's rock of ages. I had some things. He's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's, he's the savior. He's the rescuer. He's the, the sacrifice. He's the lion. He's the lamb. What does Paul mean here when he says that Jesus is the yes? In a sense, he's giving him a new title. He's giving him a new description. In one way, he's saying that Jesus is the faithful one. He's the true one. He's the unchanging one. But the meaning takes better shape in verse 20, where Paul states this. He says, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. You want to know about the faithfulness of God? Look at the life of Jesus. Look at what the life of Jesus fulfills. And so we can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. And when God comes into the scene in the garden, he's pronouncing judgment on Adam and Eve and the serpent. He comes to the serpent and he says to the serpent, the seed of this woman is going to crush your head and you will bruise his heel. Jesus is the yes. He is the seed of the woman. He is the fulfillment of that promise. You go forward a few more chapters and you find Abraham and God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to all the nations of the world. Jesus is that blessing. Jesus is the yes. He is the one that would come through the seed of Abraham. You continue on through the book of Genesis and you get to, to Israel or Jacob and he's got his, his kids around him, his boys, and he's pronouncing uh, prophecies over them. And he comes to Judah and says, Judah, the scepter, the kingly scepter will not pass from you. Jesus is the yes to the kingly scepter. He is the fulfillment. He is the promised one who would be king. You continue to move through scripture and God comes to David and says, David, I'm going to make of you an everlasting kingdom. Your kingdom will reign forever and ever. Jesus is the yes. It says in the book of Revelation that he is both the root and the branch of David. He is both of those things because he is the yes to the promise that's made there. Jesus is the yes to the promise that Yahweh would make about a new covenant that he's making with his people that will offer forgiveness of sin in the book of Jeremiah. 
Jesus is the yes to Isaiah's suffering servant who would be despised and rejected. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He would be one who would bear our sins and our transgressions. He would be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, chastised so that we might have peace. Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He is the yes to the promise that God makes in Isaiah. Jesus is the yes to Job's hope in Job 19, 23. I love this. Job says, oh, that my words were written. And oh, that they were inscribed in a book. And oh, that with an iron pen and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. Well, buddy, it happened. It happened. It's been inscribed forever and ever. What are the words that he wants us to know? For I know that my Redeemer lives. Jesus is the yes. Job goes on to say, and at the last day, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, worms have eaten my body, yet in my flesh I will see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. Friends, this is why the writers of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, they want us to see this. They write about Jesus' life so that we can see that he is the ultimate Yes, to all of the promises that God has made. He is the, the, the one that all of the strings attach to. He is the center of all history. And to this, we, the church, must respond with an amen. That's what Paul leads us in. We should respond with an amen to the glory of God. To say amen is to affirm something, to be true and to be faithful. Jesus being the fulfillment of God's plan to redeem mankind, we say amen to God expressing His faithfulness to us by saving us through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. What else can we say but amen? Then in one final beautiful appeal, Paul addresses the faithfulness of God to not only fulfill the promises that are made in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, but also to establish and apply those promises, the work of Jesus, into the lives of his people. He, he deals with the ministry of the Holy Spirit now. He's, he started with the faithfulness of God and the fulfillment in the life of Jesus, and now the application of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It says in four affirmations that He establishes, God establishes us in Christ. How does He do that? By the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Because He's faithful to His Word, God is right now establishing and strengthening and working in the lives of His people. He goes on to say God's anointed us as well. Because he's faithful, God has kept that new covenant promise that he made that he would give us new hearts and new lives. Wasn't it a joy last week to watch all the baptisms? And I said at the end, my favorite part is, is you're, you're, you're now walking in the newness of life. That's a life that's possible because of the, the anointing and the baptism of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Not only that, but He seals us by the work of the Holy Spirit because He's faithful. The Spirit not only anoints us, but He seals us. And, and then He says this, He's the down payment on the inheritance to come. The work that He started in you is a work that He will complete. Why? Because He's faithful. We may give up. He never does. We may rebuff and stop. He won't. 
He's faithful. I'll tell you those four things, those four applications, those four things the Spirit does, those are four sermons all on their own. We're not going to do that today. But all of them show the faithfulness of God. He doesn't quit on us. He doesn't turn his back on us. He doesn't stop loving us. He keeps doing his work. And Paul uses this message of God's faithfulness to express his own heart towards the Corinthians. His own love for them. Paul says, just because my plans change doesn't mean my heart for you has changed. It's not what I wanted that to signify for you guys. Just because my, my plans change doesn't mean I love you less. Later he's going to say, I, I love you more. My love for you continues to grow and abound. And to prove his faithfulness and his love for the Corinthians and, and even his integrity that, that is supported by that, what does Paul appeal to? The Trinity. The Godhead. Is there anything greater that he could appeal to? No. He talks about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit and, and uses it as a seal. This is how much I love you. This is the ministry that I have for you. Man. So today, we, we could revisit the importance of integrity in the life of a leader or a Christian. And we dealt with that last week, and so I'd just point you back in that direction and remind you, we have to live lives of integrity. What we live has to match what we say we believe. Today I have one goal, maybe two. There may be a lesser goal that I would have for you. The lesser goal would probably be this, so that you would have moving forward a clear understanding of why Paul's relationship with the Corinthians is struggling. I want you to leave today having an understanding of all that back and forth that we talked about and how, how that's just bled into the relationship and caused some of the divisions because it's going to help us moving forward. So what's the greater goal? The greater goal is that we would all leave here today rejoicing, shouting amen for the faithfulness of God that has been shown to us in the life, the death, and the resurrection of our Savior Jesus. I do hope that we can all see the faithfulness of God in every aspect of our lives. That, that's, that's part of this. I want you to note today the faithfulness of God, that you can trust Him, that He's reliable, that, that He is dependable. When you, when you get the word that your loved one has cancer, I want you to be able to know in your heart, God is faithful. He's reliable. When, when you, you lose your job or, or when you lose your keys, to, to know in that moment, God is faithful. He hasn't quit. He hasn't stopped. I want you to be able to lean on that in those moments of life. I want you to know and fall back on the faithfulness of God when, you're, when your plans change. When your desires have to take a back seat to the sovereign plan of God that's unfolding in your life, kind of the point of this letter, I want you to know that God is faithful and He has been faithful and He will continue to be faithful. I want you to have that peace in your life to know you can trust Him. I want you to have joy in your heart. I want you to have a hope that looks forward in belief because He is absolutely true. Great is his faithfulness.
You know where that verse comes from? The middle of one of the worst horror stories in all of Israel's history. It's the book of Lamentations. I believe Jeremiah wrote Lamentations, and it's, a, it's an incredible poem. But it's a poem that's pretty grotesque because it talks about the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. And Jeremiah talks about seeing the bodies, hearing the babies cry, their parents are dead. And he, he himself is, is, is vomiting because of the horrors he's experiencing. And right in the middle of that incredible song or poem, right in the middle, he says, your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You're my portion forever. I want that for me. And I want that for you. As you enter into the, the horrible circumstances of life, living in a sin-cursed world, being sinned against, being entangled with sin ourselves, I want you to know and fall back, as Jeremiah did, on the faithfulness of God. It's great. People will fail you. You know that. Your plans will fail you, but God will never fail you. God comes through every time. But as Paul establishes the faithfulness of God, he establishes and says it is rooted in the person and the work of Jesus. And that means this. That means our ability to truly embrace the faithfulness of God is dependent on what we believe about the person and work of Jesus. If I want to truly know the faithfulness of God, I have to recognize and own Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. We're handcuffed to it. As goes that message, as goes our view of the faithfulness of God. And so we have to ask the question, did Jesus live? Did Jesus die? Did he rise again? Did he live? Why, why did he live then? Well, he came to live the life that Adam couldn't live. <laughs> and the life that no one after Adam could live, including all of us in the room here today. He came to live a life of righteousness. He came to fulfill the law to, every, to the last jot and tittle, as we would use words from the New Testament. He accomplished all of it. He lived the righteous life that none of us could live. He lived because, because of our inability to truly live. Did he die? He did, why? Peter says so that he could bear our sins in his own body on the tree. Later in Corinthians, Paul's gonna say it this way. He became sin who knew no sin. Why did he die? So that he could take the punishment, the wages of our sin, upon himself on the cross. So that we could be forgiven. So that our slate could be wiped clean. It's a great exchange that baffles the mind because then he says, I'll give you the righteous life that you couldn't ever live, that I did, and I'll take your sinful life. That's all you could do, and I'll take it upon myself, and I'll bear the punishment. I'll bear the wrath. 
always think about it in this way. We'll never, those who are in Christ will never experience one millisecond of hell because Jesus endured it all for us on the cross. He became sin. And we're left with the question today then, did he rise again? And I'm happy to tell you that he did. As Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ is risen from the dead. Why did he rise? So that we might be truly justified. So that that exchange could take place. So that you could now live out of the, righteousness li the righteous life of Christ and have your sins forgiven. And you can now be welcomed into the presence of God as a daughter, as a son because of what Jesus has accomplished. Did he rise again? Why did he rise again? Also so that he could conquer what I'm going to call the first and the last enemy. The first enemy of man was the death that was promised if sin would happen. And Paul says the last enemy that we will face is death as well. Jesus' resurrection secures for us the hope of eternal life. But this isn't it. This morning I sat at the, the nursing home with people who some may not even make it through the year. And I share this message of hope with them as I share it with you here today because we're not promised another moment. Our only hope as we sang, as Tori mentioned, is that Christ is risen from the dead. And he's defeated the last enemy. Today, the day we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, I plead with you to believe in your heart that the God of faithfulness is the God who raised him from the dead. To, to believe in your heart that your, your, your peace and your joy and your hope and your purpose and finding fulfillment in life are handcuffed to what you believe about the gospel. You can continue through your life to try to find satisfaction and joy and purpose in all these things, but you will come up short. They are a mirage unless you're finding your hope, your purpose, your joy in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus and your invitation to be a part of it with Him. Today, will you say, Amen to Jesus or will you say nothing at all? That's the choice we're left with. That's the decision that, that you have to make. If you believe on Him today, all that's promised in verses 21 and 22 are yours. Established in Christ, anointed, sealed, down payment is paid. All of this, not because of your works. Please understand that. All of this, not because you showed up here today or you helped some people out this week who were struggling. All of this based upon the faithfulness of God that is most clearly revealed where? In the life, the death, and the resurrection of our Savior Jesus. I'm gonna ask you to bow with me this morning. I want to give you an opportunity to respond and, and there's, there's, there's two real responses here today. Uh, for those of you who are here and you, you know Christ and you know the anointing and the, 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 the sealing and the, the guarantee 
your response should just simply be, amen. I affirm this. I'm thankful for this. But there may be others who are here today and maybe this is the first time you're hearing this, this message of Jesus, His life, His death, His resurrection and what they mean. And if that's you today, my, my hope for you and my prayer for you and others' prayers for you have been this, that you would come to a point today where you would say, yeah, that's the Savior I need. That's what my heart's been looking for. That's the purpose. That's the hope. And that you would, as it says in Romans, believe in your heart that it is God who has raised him from the dead and confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ today. And if that's you, we want to help you. We want to answer your questions. We want to take you to some places in Scripture and, and walk through that with you, if you would let us. And so during this time, if, if you, you want some questions answered and you, you want to know more, this is an opportunity for you to come. Somebody will take you, look at God's Word with you, and help you consider those things. So I just want to give a moment now for whatever it is your response would be. If you need to come, now's the time. Let's pray. Father, this morning we rejoice in the grace that is ours through the life, death, and resurrection of our Savior Jesus. That He has accomplished what we could not do on our own and salvation is offered freely for all who would receive it. And God, I hope that, that there are some here today who came and, and they hadn't yet received it, but, but even during this time, they've, they've received it. They've confessed, they've believed, you've worked in their life. And God, for all of us who are here today and, and we have received and we know we know this hope and we know this joy. We know the promises are fulfilled that we would just live out the amen. That we would live out of a life that, that is founded on your faithfulness. And so the trials wouldn't throw us. Our mouths wouldn't be filled with complaint and grumbling and fighting because we are resting in your faithfulness. We're resting knowing that your faithfulness is what guides us through every moment, through the good, the bad, and the ugly. What a promise that is to us today. We rejoice in our Savior today. We rejoice in the hope of resurrection. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.